the Oakdale Christian Centre podcast. In this recording, I lead a study into God's in control. The main reading is Judges chapter 6, verse 33, through to the end of chapter 7. When I sat down to prepare this evening, there was a a couple of ideas running around my head. Um, In my reading plan at the beginning of the year, uh, there was some really interesting stuff on the judges of judges. I thought we might look at that. Um, I'd also had some thoughts on uh, humility um, that I think maybe God was more prompting me about rather than you guys. Um, But in the end, Tim's study on Esther a couple of weeks ago spoke to me. And I felt a real prompting from God to talk tonight about uh, God being in control. So tonight, it's God is in control. Who knows? Maybe the judges of judges or humility, maybe a future study. Either that, or he's going to give me a keep, he's going to keep smacking me about it. <laughs> um, but the concept of God's in control is a really important one. Uh, as Christians, you kind of think that... Well, the idea of God being in control, well, it's, it's a given. It's, it goes without saying. But from what I've been reading uh, while preparing tonight, there's lessons from God's word that, that help us set ourselves up to properly allow God to use, you know, make the best of it when, we have, when, when he is in control. So, because really what we want to be, what God to be able to do is, is to really make the best of those situations he's placed us in or those situations we find ourselves in. Mm-hmm. So what's quite weird about preparing a study on God being in control is the odd way that I find these studies coming together. Because I genuinely believe that I couldn't prepare one of these without God. Almost physically being in control. So, so when I sit down, I, 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 um, so when I sit down to prepare one of these or, or those open services where Dave volunteers me, um, I often don't really know what I'm going to say when I'm, when I'm planning it. And then I'll sit down at the computer and God will prompt me with a subject. And then I'll, I'll do some reading around in the Bible and, and look up some stories. And thank goodness for Google, because uh, it helps an awful lot. Um, and then I just sit and I give my hands over to God and let him type through me. I let him take control of my fingers and the thoughts just come. I guess what I'm getting at here is that when you let God take control, he will use you. Mm-hmm. It's also a bit of encouragement that if God can help me put a study together, he can pretty much help any of us do it. And it's very much different when I'm preparing a presentation for work. It's, it, it, just, it has a completely different feel about the way, that I, the, the way it all comes together. So, this evening, we've, we're going to do a whistle-stop uh, tour through the Bible and pick just a, through, uh, a few people that, that allowed God to take control and see what happened and see how God moved. The first person we're going to have a look at is uh, Gideon, from the, as, as we just read from Judges 7, where God got Gideon to reduce the, right, the army right down from 32,000 to 300 to fight the Midianites. This is one of those really well-known stories that I'm pretty sure I remember being taught in Sunday school. There's this massive Midianite army. We know it's massive because of what it says in uh, verse 12. Um, their, cam- their camels could no more be numbered than the sand on the seashore. 
And God wants to prove that it's not because of Israel's own power or strength that are going to fight off the invaders. It's they're, they're going to win because God is in control. Although our hero, and that's in quotes, isn't exactly brimming with confidence <laughs> and probably really shouldn't have been in control of the army. Uh, can we have reading one, which is uh, slightly earlier, it's Judges 6. The angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak in Ophrah uh, that belonged to Joash the Abizarite, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a wine press to keep it from the Midianites. Then the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon and said, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. But sir, Gideon replied, If the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Where are all the wonders that our fathers told us about when they said, Did not the Lord bring us out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and put us into the hand of Midian. The Lord turned to him and said, Go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? <coughs> but Lord, Gideon said, How can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh. I am the least of my family. The Lord answered, I will be with you. And you will strike down the Midianites together. He's not exactly confident, is he? <laughs> um, now, this is something that jumped out at me. <clears throat> I'm pretty sure that if an angel of the Lord came and spoke to me, like one did for Gideon, I'd be pretty confident that God was with me. But even after all that, Gideon still needs a sign. And he gets uh, God to do the whole fleeces thing, wet and dry fleeces that we just read earlier. I guess what jumps out at me here is that God understands that it is hard to let go of control and hand it over to him. And this is where faith comes in. Yeah. Uh, can we have reading two, which is Hebrews 11, please? Now faith is the substance of things hoped for and evidence of things not seen. For by it the elders obtained a good report. Faith is believing that God exists, that he, re uh, that he's, he looks after and is, is waiting for those who seek him and that we can hope in him because his promises will always come true. Faith doesn't require perfection, but consistent belief that God is in control and we are to live in accordance with his will. A life of faith is lived in believing the promises of God. I'll say that again. God doesn't expect us to have perfect faith but faith enough to see that he is in control. So we've already said that, um, humanly speaking, Gideon had no right to command the army. If you continue reading in Judges 6, you'll also see that uh, because he takes down an altar to Baal and uh, takes down an Asherah pole, he's pretty unpopular with the people as well. So from this, we can probably say that it's sometimes not what we bring to the table that God can use, in fact, sometimes the opposite. God, God working through unlikely, unlikely people yeah. and our weaknesses. In a couple of minutes, we're going to have a look at uh, a place in the Bible where God doesn't follow this pattern. And he does use someone's abilities uh, to show that he's in control. I love God's word. It's like an onion. You, you loads of layers. You can keep peeling back and keep discovering new stuff. But for this underscore story of Gideon, there is an awful lot we can take away. Uh, reading 3, which is Philippians 4, please. Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. Yeah. Let your moderation be known unto all men. The Lord is at hand. 
Be careful for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which passeth all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Wonderful reassurance. This says to me, even though when we've given control to God, that he understands that we're still going to be worried and we're still going to be a little bit anxious, even though we're not meant to be. But God will help deal with our anxieties. It may be that God brings a supernatural sense of peace, as Mike just read, that we could feel. In a situation that where being peaceful is actually impossible without God. But God has far more than one way of achieving something. Let's reread uh, one of the, the verses, or a couple of verses from Judges 7. Um, reading 4, back to Judges 7, please. Yeah, um, you say about Gideon not being confident. When he took the ash in the pole down, he took it down at night, didn't he? So yep. that you wouldn't even know it was there. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> What's the makeup? <laughs> even that night, the Lord said to Gideon, get up and go down against the camp, because I'm going to give it into your hands. If you are afraid to attack, go down to the camp with your servant, Pua and listen to what they are saying. Afterward, you will be encouraged to attack the camp. So he and Pua, his servant, went down to the outpost of the camp. The Midianites and the Amalekites and all the other eastern peoples had settled in the valley, thick as locusts. Their camels could no more be counted than the sand on the seashore. Gideon arrived, just as a man was telling a friend his dream. I had a dream, he said. A round loaf of barley bread came tumbling into the midnight Midianite camp. It struck the tent with such force that the tent overturned and collapsed. His friend responded, This can be nothing other than the sword of Gideon, son of Josh, the Israelite. God has given the Midianites and the whole camp into his hands. When Gideon heard the dream and its interpretation, he worshipped God. He returned to the camp of Israel and called out, Get up, the Lord has given the Midianite camp into your hands. I love this. God's, God's word does make me smile sometimes. So God's just asked Gideon to do something completely illogical. And Gideon has got rid of over 99% of the army that he turned up with. Because he let God take control. And God just drops this. Oh, and by the way, if you're a bit scared, um, go and have a little bit of a spy. And, and go and have a look around. God understands that it's natural for us to be scared or nervous when we hand over control. So he may just give us those supernatural feelings of peace or he may reassurance in a more down-to-earth way like he just does here. The final thing I wanted to pull out of the story of Gideon uh, before we move on is that when God has control, he won't always do what you expect. So God could have, sorry, Gideon could have thought, right, got these great big 32,000 men, strong army, but, but they're bigger than us. There's, they're, they're massive army against us. So God's going to have to really show up. He's going to have to triple our strength or he's going to turn up with his, his angels to fight with us. But Gideon has given God control. And the first thing God does is reduce the size of the army. Something that is completely unexpected. Humanly speaking, it doesn't even make any sense. Mm-hmm. How easy would it have been for Gideon to think, whoa, hang on a second. Is this really God's plan? Maybe I've got it wrong. Maybe I'll just, uh, I'll just keep a few back, just in case. Always good to have a bit of a backup plan. Mm-hmm. But 
The important thing to take from the, this part of the story is that when you've given over control to God, plan B shouldn't be taking back control. Mm-hmm. Friends, when God is in control, he doesn't make mistakes. We definitely can. God doesn't. Um, can we have reading five, which is Isaiah, please? Remember the former sins of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declared in the end from the beginning and from the ancient times things that are not yet done, saying my counsel shall stand and that I will do all my pleasure. And can we have a reading six, which is from 2 Samuel, please? As for God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord is tried. He is a buckler to all them that trust in him. For who is God, save the Lord? And who is a rock, save our God? More more reassurance from God's word. God doesn't mess up. He's not going to let you down. Absolutely believe from top to bottom... God is in control. We know that life isn't going to be a walk in the park. Being a Christian does not mean that nothing bad will happen to you or to those that you love. But we can have complete and utter confidence in the one that placed the stars in the sky, that knows each hair on your head. He will be with us whatever we go through. Um, Reading 7 from Deuteronomy, please. And the Lord... He is the one who goes before you. He will be with you. He will not leave you, nor forsake you. Do not fear, nor be dismayed. So Moses spoke these words to Joshua as he commissioned him to take the Israelites into the promised land. But we can take from these words the hope and confidence that God will go before us. He walks alongside us and he has got our backs. He will not leave us nor forsake us. That's Hebrews 13, verse 5. And he is well aware of what is happening, all that has happened, and all that will happen, according to his wisdom, his love, and his plan. We do not need to fear when we have God in control of our future. Let's take a look at another Sunday school story, shall we? Uh, Reading 8, which is from 1 Samuel. David. Then he took his staff in his hand, chose five smooth stones from the stream, put them in the pouch of his shepherd's bag, and with his sling in his hand, approached the Philistine. Meanwhile, the Philistine, with his shield bearer in front of him, kept coming closer to David. He looked David over and saw he was only a young boy, young man, ruddy and handsome, and he despised him. He said to David, am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Come here, he said, I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. David said to the Philistine, You come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. Defiled and defied. This day the Lord will hand you over, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. Today I will give the carcasses of the... Philistine army to the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel all those gathered there here will know that it is not by sword or spear the Lord says for the battle is the Lord's he will give all of you into his 
hands into other hands. As the Philistine moved closer to attack him, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet him. Reaching into his bag, taking out the stone, he slung it, struck the Philistine in the forehead. Stone sank into his forehead. He fell face down on the ground. David is almost the complete opposite to Gideon. Strong, confident, knows about the Lord's blessing, has worked directly for King Saul in the past. But this story of David and Goliath is another example of someone who is allowing God to take control of the situation and seeing what amazing things God will do. This time, though, God doesn't follow the same pattern. Instead of being scared or timid, like Gideon, David is so confident that God's going to turn up. He's almost arrogant with it. Instead of God having to prove himself to Gideon, David's right up there telling the army off for being afraid. I guess the lesson that we can learn here is that the more confidence that you have in God, the easier it is to, for, God to, for you to allow God to take control. Kind of, kind of obvious, really. Um, can we go for reading nine, which is another bit of 1 Samuel? And David said unto Saul, My servant kept his father's sheep, and we came and lay on the bed, took a lamb out of the flock, and then went up after him and smote him and delivered it out of his mouth. And when he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and smote him and slew him. But I seriously fought the lion and the bear, and I said, Circumcised Philistine shall be as one of them, seeing he had to file the armies of the living God. David said, Moreover, the Lord that delivered me out of the paw of the lion and out of the paw of the bear, he will deliver me out of the hand of this Philistine. The Saul said unto David, Go, and the Lord be with thee. And how does David have confidence in God? Because he's seen God work in the past. Yeah. He's protected him against the bear and the lion. The more that we know God and know about God, the easier it is to hand over control. This says to me, we should be actively engaging with God's word and seeing how God works, engaging with God's people, hearing testimonies, listening and learning about how God's work, God's worked in people's lives in the past and how he's continuing to work in their lives. Uh, a couple of years ago, I read the book God Smuggler, uh, which is about Brother Andrew, uh, who took Bibles into the USSR and Eastern Europe right in the middle of the Cold War. And he was a, a big part of setting up the Open Doors Ministry. Having confidence in God is a really big theme in that book. And I came away re from reading it really encouraged. It's definitely worth a bit of your time if you can find a copy. Another difference between David and Gideon is that God can use the skills and talents that we have because handing control of those things, uh, sorry, because handing control to God also means handing control of those things, those skills, those talents to God as well. There is a reason why God was able to use David's skill with a slingshot. And it was because David was willing to hand it over to God. God takes control of the situation and Goliath hits the deck. What can we learn from this? Yes, if God needs to use a weakness of ours, he will. See Gideon. But also, God can use your strengths and his talents, but only once you're willing to hand them over to God. We all know it needs to be a full and utter surrender to God. 
And this includes those things that we're good at, as well as those things that we need more help with. By now, you all should know that when I run a study like this, what you're not going to get is any great biblical insight. I'm not gonna say anything that you probably haven't already heard or know, but I kind of like to think that God uses these studies as a, as a reminder of some of the more obvious things in the Bible. <laughs> so I'll just take this point to remind you that God is also in control of the personal stuff in our lives. We know that Jesus comes the physical storm, as, as well as so many encounters with people uh, finding difficulties in their lives, whether that's sickness or, or illness or, or, or whatever it is. At the moment, my daily reading plan is going through Mark. And it's almost like every paragraph, every verse is a new miracle or a new story or a new healing. It's, it's almost relentless. There's no, there's no time for contemplation when you read in Mark. Um, and you don't have to be very familiar with the New Testament to see Jesus' great compassion for those that he comes into contact with. He hasn't changed. He still has a great compassion. But it's not just compassion with no intervention. Jesus is in control of sickness then. He's still the great healer. At the beginning of the year, Dave did a whole study on healing, why it happens, why it doesn't. Uh, and I'm not even going to attempt to try and reproduce what Dave said. I'd only get myself in a knot. So let us jump back to another story in the Old Testament. Uh, reading 10 from Exodus, please. Moses said to Joshua, Choose some of our men and go out and fight the Amalekites. Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hands. So Joshua fought the Amalekites as Moses had ordered. And Moses, Aaron and Hur went to the top of the mountain. As long as Moses held up his hands, the Israelites were winning. But whenever he lowered his hands, the Amalekites were winning. When Moses grew tired, they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. Aaron and Hur held his hands up, one on one side, one on the other, so that his hands remained steady till sunset. So Joshua overcame the Amalekite army with a sword. Another really well-known story here, where Moses watches this battle, and when his hands are raised, bringing glory to God, Israel are winning. When he lets his hands drop, then they start losing. We just thought about God is in control right down at the personal level, but he's right in control at the country, at the world level too. And thank goodness for it, given what's going on in the news at the minute. There are so many things we could take away from this story of Moses, but there's just one main thing I wanted to, 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 to dig out. When raising his arms, Moses is acknowledging God. And with a physical act, he's saying, God's in control. At this point, Moses is a great leader, kind of respected by the Israelites, although they do have a good grumble sometimes. And I'd imagine that it's quite, it would have been quite easy for Moses to take credit for some of God's work. But of course, he doesn't do that. When God's working through us, and we've given God's, God control, We've got to be incredibly careful to remind ourselves that it's God's glory, not ours. As many of you know, I grew up in the Salvation Army, and it's still a church I have a great fondness for. Like most churches, it's not perfect, 
and I sometimes wonder and worry about its direction. But I know of many good people, many born-again Christians who worship in Salvation Army Corps and, and a lot of local leaders uh, at the local church level who have a real heart to God and, and, and they're living out their callings. If I had to ask you, though, to name two things about the Salvation Army that you know, what would you say? Uniform. Uniform. Not the one of the ones I was thinking. I was thinking homeless and bands. They're very known for the homeless work and they're very known for the brass bands. A situation I've seen growing up, um, as I played in a number of bands uh, with the army, is a problem with some bandmasters and some of the top players in the really big bands. Because they forget that God has put them where they are and that their purpose for playing or conducting is to glorify God, not the band, not themselves. I think anyone that serves God should do it to the best of their ability. And that musical excellence or excellence in anything isn't exactly a bad thing. Uh, it's something I'm still working a, a fair way towards, I think. But it's got to be all about yeah. God. Yeah. Uh, can we go for reading 11, which is Mark, please? So they came to Jerusalem. Then Jesus went into the temple and began to drive out those who bought and sold in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he would not allow anyone to carry wares through the temple. Then he, then he taught, saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations? But you have made it a den of thieves. And the scribes and the chief priests heard it and sought how they might destroy him. For they feared him, because all the people were astonished at his teaching. So this is the story of Jesus turning over the, temp the tables in the temple. Mm -hmm. I, get it's, I guess it's quite easy to us to, to, to think of this as just uh, another example of, of Jesus getting a little bit cross with the situation that he sees directly in front of him. The, te the temple was having money changers and uh, people selling things um, where people coming to worship were effectively having to pay to take part in the worship service because the, the laws laid out in the Old Testament say they have to bring certain sacrifices and they were being charged for it and all sorts of stuff going on. But it has a lesson that we've got to learn as a church today. Losing focus of God in a church environment isn't unique to the church that I grew up in. In fact, you don't have to dig very far into some of the really big mega churches to see where problems have caused because God has been pushed to the sidelines yeah. and it's the leader yeah. or the worship team yeah. or the church activities that take centre um, and become the main focus of the church. Having an amazing teacher or worship that really connects or having a great church outreach programme isn't a bad thing as long as God is in the centre yeah. and he's the focus of what we're doing as believers. Yeah. That's because a fantastic pastor, like our Dave here, <laughs> incredible worship, or programs that make a real difference, come first from a calling from God, and are expressions of God being in control, rather than something we do because it's fun or it's enjoyable, or gives us a sense of self-worth. This time last year, Dave did a study on the churches from Revelation, and I know many of us were challenged by God, uh, the idea of God knocking on the outside of the church, trying to get in. Now, most of us will never be in the situation 
will never play or preach to thousands of people or get recognised for our amazing work like someone like Mother Teresa. But all of us can fall into a bit of pride sometimes. It's so important to ensure that when God's in control, God gets the glory. I guess there's a fairly simple rule here. If he's not in the centre, then we've got it wrong. A couple of weeks ago, uh, Tim laid uh, a study on Esther. And it's a fantastic study. And one of the things that uh, jumped out at me um, is that, and, and Tim mentioned it, is that in the book of Esther, God is actually never mentioned. But his fingerprints are all over the story. From putting Mordecai and his family there in the first place, to, to making the king uh, read the bit of history that reminded him of what Mordecai did uh, at a key point, and, and for the way that God acted through Esther. Isn't it great to know that even when we don't see God moving, God is still in control of every situation. The last three areas of the Bible that I wanted to look in, into um, are to do with our ministry and, and God being in control of our calling. And obviously all of us have a calling whether we stand at the front or not. Can we have the, the two readings from Acts 8? So it's uh, reading 12 and then can we have reading 13 please? Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ to them. And the multitudes with one accord heeded the things spoken by Philip, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. For unclean spirits, crying with a loud voice, came out of many who were possessed, and many who were paralysed and lame were healed. And there was great joy in the city, the sorcerer's profession of faith. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Go south to the road, uh, to the road, the desert road, that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started uh, out, and on his way he met an Ethiopian merchant, uh, an important official in charge of all the treasures of the Kankadek, Candices, something like that, uh, which means Queen of the Ethiopians. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship. And on his way home was sitting in his chariot reading the book of Isaiah the prophet. The spirit told Philip, go to the chariot and stay near. Then Philip ramped up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. Do you understand what you are reading? Philip asked. How can I, he said, unless someone explains it to me. So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. This is the passage of, of scripture the urchin was reading. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and, and as a lamb before it sheared, 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 sheared is silent. So he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. The urchin asked Philip, "Tell me, please, who is the prophet talking about? Himself or someone else?" Then Philip began uh, with a very passage of scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. As they travelled along the road, they came to some water and the urchin said, Look, here is water. What can stand in the way of me being baptised? And he gave orders uh, to stop the chariot. Then both Philip and the urchin went down into the water and Philip baptised him. When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away, and the urchin did not see him again, 
but went on his way rejoicing. Did I say what did I say? Urchin. Did I say Let's take a little think about this story for a second. Here's Philip working away, evangelizing in Samaria quite successfully. Mm. And God chooses to take him out of that situation to go to the desert and talk to a single person. At the time, probably did Philip probably didn't have a clue who he would had been called to witness to. And to be honest, I wonder if he was a bit miffed at being taken away from where he was having such an impact on the city to talk to a single person. But because in Philip's life, God was in control, he obeyed and he went and spoke to the official. And because of this one act of witnessing, a whole country and region got to hear about the good news of Jesus. When God is in control, then he's got the big picture. If God calls you to do something, then obeying is always the correct response. Because we don't know what God knows. He understands that what he wants us to do, how it impacts and how it affects the big picture and his plan. God's in control, you know. Another example of this is also found in Acts. Um, Right, so reading 14, please. And when they'd gone throughout uh, Bygia, and the region of Galatia, and we're forbidden of the Holy Ghost to preach the word in Asia. After they were come to Mysia, they essayed to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit suffered them not. And they, passing by Mysia, came down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. There stood a man of Macedonia, and prayed him, saying, Come over into Macedonia and help us. And after we had seen the vision, immediately we endeavoured to go into Macedonia, assuredly gathering that the Lord had called us for to preach the gospel unto them. I wanted to uh, com- uh, compare this story about, um, about uh, Paul and not going into Asia. Um, with the story of Peter um, and and the food and the dream, uh, also from Acts, uh, which is reading 15, please. On the morrow, as they went on their journey and drew near unto the city, Peter went up upon the housetop and prayed about the sixth hour. And he became very angry and would have hidden but while they made ready, he fell into a trance and saw heaven open and a curtain vessel descending unto him as it had been a great sheet knitted at the four corners and let down to the earth wherein um, were all manners of four-footed beasts of the earth and wild beasts and creeping things and fowls of the air, and there came a voice uh, to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, Not so, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice spake unto him again, and the second time, What God hath cleansed, that 
call not thou common. This was done uh, three times, and the vessel was received again into heaven. So, in Paul's case, he wanted to go to Asia, but God had other plans, as God needed him in Macedonia. In the story about Peter, Peter didn't want to do something that God wanted him to do, so God sent this dream. What's wonderful about these stories is that both Paul and Peter are so in tune with God and are so used to having God in control that they listened to the prompting of the Spirit and did what they were told, almost without sort of arguing it too much, although Peter obviously did a little bit. <laughs> All you need to do is uh, read the rest of Acts 16 and Acts 10, where those two stories come from, to see where the impact of these particular events have. In Paul's case, he could have argued that going to Asia and spreading the good news was what he was called to do. You know, he was called to go to um, the non-Jewish world and preach. But when God's in control, he must be in control of the work that you do for him. It is hard to hand over control, but it's what we're meant to do. Consulting the spirit is absolutely critical when living your calling. Peter's situation in the dream is a bit more difficult to get our heads around. We're often told that, that if you're feeling a prompting from God or you have a prophecy spoken over you, that you've got to test it against the Bible, as God will never be inconsistent. Now, you could argue that actually on the face of it, Peter's dream here is against the rules laid out in the Old Testament from Leviticus. But it's clear from a few places in the New Testament that God has now overwritten those very specific rules. Uh, Our last reading is reading 16, Uh, please. Again, Jesus called the crowd to him and said, Listen to me, everyone, and understand this. Nothing outside a man can make him unclean by going into him. Rather, it is what comes out of a man that makes him clean. After he had left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples asked him about his, this parable. Are you so dull? He asked. Don't you see that nothing that enters a man from the outside can make him unclean? For it doesn't go into his heart, but into his stomach, and then out of his body. In saying this, Jesus declared, all foods clean. So, pretty, pretty clear, I would say, there. That's, 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 yeah. and, and, that's prob- and that's the reason why we don't necessarily have all of the, the f- food restrictions and, and laws that they, they have in the Old Testament that the Jewish people still follow. Uh, there's also a section in Acts where this bit is talked about. Um, so it is, it is clear, this bit. If you read the rest of Mark 7, what you'll see is Jesus teaching that the way the Pharisees have interpreted the rules mean that it's more of a matter of tradition, you could say, that they are following the letter of the law rather than the intention of the law. Don't get me wrong here. The rules laid out in the Old Testament are absolutely important. But the Bible has to be considered as a complete thing, including scenarios like this. But I'm going to move on before I'd start digging myself into a theological hole, if I haven't done so already. 
But the point I was trying to make that is that when God is in control, societal expectations are far less important than doing what God has told you to do. Here, though, you've got to know your Bible because you need to fully test what God is telling you in a situation like Peter found himself in. We can all think of situations where teaching has been given on only a partial understanding of, of a Bible or where verses have been taken out of context. I will just say again, when God is in control, he will not be inconsistent with his word. I'm hoping that as we go into prayer now and as we leave tonight, that the idea of God being in control gives you a bit of confidence. Confidence that he understands what you're going through and is still in control. Confidence that despite of what you think of as your weaknesses, God is still in control. God is in control of your strengths. Even when we're not perfect, God is still in control. God is in control of our worship, our ministry, and our individual callings. Despite of what society says, God is still in control. And just as relevant as ever. As we head into a time of prayer now, maybe we should be asking God to take back control to identify those areas of our lives where we're still clinging onto the steering wheel maybe what you need to be talking about to God this evening is some reassurance that he's got you in his hands and that you can be fully confident in him so yes confidence in God but also the fact of letting him take control letting him make you mold you because for God to take control, we've got to release it. We hope you've enjoyed this episode. To find out more about our church, including our service times, visit www.oakdalechristiancentre.org.